Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Cue the crickets. Let's be quiet. Anyway, that's okay. I'm doing good. I had a good day. Having a good night, too. I just want to make a quick announcement before I start blah blahing, like I like, like I blah blah. Uh, Geraldine Orozco, who was supposed to be on to talk about the, the hybrid program, will not be with us tonight. She has COVID, unfortunately. So, what happens when the guest, and I only found out about this about uh, 45 minutes ago. So uh, you guys have choices. <laughs> so what happens when the guest doesn't or isn't available? Well, we are going to be reading. Uh, we're going to be doing our Sunday book reading. We're just going to add an extra day to it today. And uh, hope you guys enjoy it. It's about the Salem Witch Trials. It's uh, by Rebecca F. Pittman. And it goes. She, she, she does a lot of research in her stuff. So it's going into a lot of detail about the witch trials. And you know about what led up to the witch trials and why and the, and who what why were when of, of everything, and Sunday uh, I think we got three three uh, three chapters on Sunday and it was very very interesting very it pulls you in to the story, so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Unfortunately, um, Geraldine said that she would reschedule when she felt better, which is fine. So we'll probably see her again sometime in November, but uh, I was looking forward to that. Just a heads up too, and tomorrow night Nancy's going to be here and we're going to be talking about pets. Deceased pets, and she's also going to do readings tomorrow night. It's for our part of our you know Halloween gig, so she's going to be doing readings tomorrow night. But tonight, unfortunately, Geraldine's got COVID, so I'm on my own. So I'm going to read. Okay, so uh, we'll get people's time to get in that into the room and all that good stuff. I'm going to introduce myself like I always do, and we're just going to go into this. So my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Based here in Sacramento, California, we are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you and uh, help you out. You know, we might be a couple hours away, but we will get to you and help you out. We also have branches of Cal- of haunts, I'm not saying California, but haunts in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you need help in those states, shoot me an email. I'm all over the place on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram under the name of Ghosty Gal. You can find me on you can find us on Twitter uh, under Cal Haunts. You can find us over at TikTok under California Haunts, a little lowercase. All right. And by the way, if you I do have a TikTok account and you want to come over and and uh, join me over there, that's pretty cool because we I, I do different things on TikTok. I just don't do straight shows. I do comedy bits and and and, and different info things over on TikTok. So that would be a place for you to check out those. And of course, they're all short, so you don't get that. You know, you don't, don't get these long things. Okay, if you're watching from Facebook and you happen to like to be read to, <laughs> if you like what you hear tonight, why don't you hit that like button and follow me over on Facebook because we're all, I'm always looking for followers. Same thing goes for YouTube. If, um, if, if you like what you hear tonight and uh, you enjoy my book reading book tonight, um, please hit that subscribe button. There's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Uh, with a Sherlock Holmes hat on and a magnifying glass, and that's how you subscribe. You hit that, and that red subscribe button will pop right right on up. 
But uh, yeah, and if again, if, if you're over on TikTok and you want to join up with us, California Haunts lowercase, check, check out the video stuff we have over there. Just like, uh, again, another one, Ghosty Gal. Look at that, I'm asking for all kinds of join up and, and follows and all this. I like it when you follow me, it's fun. I, I like talking. In fact, if you send me an email or you come in to chat, I will chat with you. You know, I'll even email, email you back and stuff. So uh, I'm very open to that stuff. Anyway, again tonight, Geraldine Orozco has come down with COVID. Um, she notified me about 45 minutes before the show was to start. So uh, since we're short on guests right now, uh, I couldn't get anybody else. You know, it's a short notice, which is okay. She's sick, you know. It'd be different if she flaked or something, but she did. So because of that, uh, I'm going to be reading. So let me open up my tablet. I've been letting it charge for the last hour. So hopefully we, there's plenty of charge on there. And give me a minute with my antiquated tablet. So take this off. Disconnect. My tablet's about eight years old now. My Galaxy Note. So again, I will be reading. So if you just want to turn the screen off and just hear my voice reading, that's cool too. I have no problem with that. You don't have to stare at me the whole time. <laughs> I wouldn't want to. Um, I will be looking at the screen. I see Janelle came in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you guys could still come into the chat room and I'll look up from time to time. May take me a minute to respond because once my eyes get focused on their contact lenses, you know, I have to let everything refocus. Yeah, she did reschedule. She did reschedule. So we're going to get her back, Sandy. So again, I'm going to be reading and we're going to read about, in fact, I'll give you the book title. My mind's like jello right now. I've been out sh shopping and doing other like normal things today. So let me get my Kindle up here. It's kind of nice to have this book because, you know, when things like this happen, I can just go to read these chapters, which is nice, you know. So it, it, it makes it easier on me when I'm doing a show. Instead of having to come up with, like, instant material to chit-chat about. Even though I enjoy talking to you guys. I could talk for hours, but, you know. Sometimes when I have, when it's, it's easier to focus. Okay. All right. Let's see where we're at. Okay. The book is The History and Haunting of Salem, and it covers the witch's trials, and it's by um, Rebecca F. Pittman, and she's uh, she's been a frequent guest here on the show, and uh, we, we actually read one of her other books. If you remember, the book about Lizzie Borden was written by Rebecca. So, yeah, so she's been a guest. So here we go. We're on Chapter 4, A Village of Hatred, and so far where we're at is she was just building up, you know, the building blocks to get the books rolling. And so she's 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 mentioned, you know, the, some of the famous names that you guys have probably heard of that ended up being executed during executed during the witch trials. And so she's been building this up. And and now um, as we've got the first three chapters were based on why, you know, people started accusing other people of of witchcraft, you know, and then the weird and, and the strange and offbeat things that led up like uh, there was something about buying fish from somebody and. Because they decided not to buy the fish, the woman the next day got sick. So they thought that this gal had cast a spell on her to make her get sick. And it's just stupid little things like that that, that they started building up on. Okay. So, all right, here we go. The impetus for the witch pet, excuse me, the impetus for the witchcraft outbreak can only be understood by looking at the layers of festering strife that was the foundation of Salem Village, as surely as the bedrock it was built upon. The innocent victims that were executed in 1692 were not cried out upon at random. 
The afflicted girls were as puppets. And it was the dissatisfied adults of Salem that were pulling their strings. The large statue that commands the commons area in today's Salem is that of Roger Conant, the town's founder in 1626. Conant knew, as those who came after him, that the location was a prime spot for fishing and as a trading post for the West Indies, Europe, and beyond. The area grew with the influx of Puritans making their way to the Promised Land. Soon, it became necessary to stretch the town's boundaries northward, where the soil was fertile enough to supply the food needs of a growing populace. Land grants were given out to people who could farm the land. As the years went by, several men prospered in this interior farmland, about seven miles inland from Salem Town. Names such as Putnam, Porter, Ingersoll, and Hutchinson would appear as large landowners and would become prominent participants in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. It's, it is here the conflict began between the farmers of Salem Village and the sea merchants of Salem Town. Salem Village produced the food and the tax revenues Salem Town depended upon, yet the rural community had no rights. They were forced to pay taxes that improved the roads and conditions of the town while living without any real autonomy of their own. Other neighboring areas of Salem Village also strained at the bit and became independent towns. Marblehead in 1648, Wenham in 1643, Manchester in 1645, and Beverly in 1668. Salem Village tried in vain to create its own infrastructure. Despite hundreds of petitions, court appearances, filings, and pleadings, Salem Village did not receive its, its, its autonomy until 1752. In 1667, several Salem Village farmers appealed to the Essex County Court to have the members of the village relieved of sending their men to take their turn to Salem Town's night watch. This is where two men or more were ordered to spend the night in the watchtower to alert the town of Indians or other dangers that appeared. The general court granted the request, yet continued to order the Salem Village farmers to take their turn. Thirty-one farmers appeared again at court with the following grievance. Some of us live ten miles, some eight or nine. The nearest are at least five miles from, from Salem Meeting House. And then, tis nearly a mile farther, to the sentry place, so that some of us must travel armed eleven miles to watch, which is more than a soldier's march that is under pay. And yet not excused from paying our part to old charges, both ecclesiastical and civil, besides the maintenance of our families these, these hard times, when the hand of God is heavy upon the, the husbandman. The Salem farmers had no meeting house minister or church of their own and were forced to walk the above-mentioned miles to attend religious services each week. The time and mileage to fulfill the watch duty added to their grief. The court finally capitulated and changed the ruling to all farmers dwelling above four miles from the meeting house. They were exempt from duty. Nathaniel Putman, among others, refused to comply. He was fined 20 pounds and instructed to offer a public apology. Parentheses, public humiliation was always at the foreground of the Puritan society. The Putman's name the Putnam's name, appeared again on court documents when John and Thomas Putnam appeared before a Salem Town meeting with a petition signed by 28 farmers. The manifesto informed the town that the farmers were refusing to pay the new tax for construction of a new town meeting house. Salem Village wanted their own meeting house and minister. 
once again bemoaning the great distance they had to travel to attend services, despite the fact they were considered a part of Salem Town's religious congregation. George Corwin, a Salem merchant, acting marshal, and meeting moderator, rebuffed the put excuse me, rebuffed the Putnams and declared they were out of order. It only strengthened the growing tension between town and village. It was clear the wealthy sea merchants of Salem Town were running the show. Finally, after applying continued pressure to the general court in Boston, the villagers were granted the right to build their own meeting house and hire a minister. They were not released from paying other civil taxes that still tied them to the town of Salem and its own interests. The general court instructed that a five-man committee be elected to assess which households were paying taxes in support of a new minister. The village elected its committee on November 11, 1672, and the meeting house plans began, along with the search for their very own minister. Salem Village may have won the battle to have its own religious services and meeting house, but the war between the seaport town of Salem and the rural farmland of Salem Village was far from over. <laughs> I just got lost, I'm sorry. The town continued to regulate everything, from the price of the villagers' farm goods for sale to their, to their constables, road, lay, road layouts, and land grants. Salem Village was split into its loyalties, with some of its inhabitants still firmly entrenched in the Salem town's identity, while many of the villagers strive valiantly to increase their autonomy and fight the constant restraints placed upon them. 1672 saw the town wielding its power when it continued to tax the villagers for repairs and improvements to the town meeting house. When Nathaniel Putnam refused a town, const town constable, seized two and a half acres of Putnam's land. That was literally in his front yard. It wasn't until 1713 that the villagers were finally released from paying the taxes for the town's meeting house. Salem Town held all the cards, and as strife continued, many believed it was the devil's doing the shuffling. More and more, the Salem villagers appealed to the Salem Town meetings to allow them to become a separate and fully independent town. They were refused and and sorry, they were refused and admonished. I don't know why that stopped me. For the restless frame of spirit that pervaded their small community, the restless frame of mind was only enhanced with boundary disputes between itself and the neighboring towns who had effectively become independent from Salem Town, Topsfield, Andover, and Wenham, who hemmed who, who hemmed in Salem Village, bitterly fought over land rights. If the landowner's land was found to have tiptoed over the imaginary boundary line into another township, then that property was subject to be taxed by the offended municipality. As Salem Village was still considered only the ugly stepchild of Salem Town, without authority or even its own constables, the feuding became at times violent, as the villagers felt the futility of their situation. Lawsuits, appeals, petitions, and face-to-face -face quarreling put neighbor against neighbor. In 1679, Salem Village had acquired the reputation of a community where brother is against brother and neighbors are against neighbors, all quarreling and smiting one another. The area was known for its uncomfortable divisions and contentions. The wife of John Dodge of Salem declared that if Wenham men came there for rates, she would make the blood run about their ears. A Wenham neighbor laughed at her and said she didn't frighten him. At that, she caught him by the hair of his head and with her other hand struck him, struck him on the face in a furious manner. The importance of Salem Village's precarious and unprecedented structure cannot be stressed enough. They were without government, not only because Massachusetts was currently without its charter, 
but closer to home, Salem Town regulated their every move. They were taxed land grants given and withheld, the very living, their very living determined by a town that would, on one hand, set the rules, yet on the other hand, tell them they were on their own with their disputes. Surrounding townships considered them a non-issue, an ineffectual square acreage sometimes called the parish in Salem Town. It was, run- it was a rudderless ship headed for dangerous waters. Who was in charge? The village of Salem was steeped in bitter disputes that even the hard-won victory of having its own meeting house and minister became a hotbed of contention among residents. The question arose, who had the power to call and dismiss a minister? This should have been the right of church members. Yet, when James Bailey was voted for as minister in 1673, he was elected by all the Householders in Salem, not just those perched on pews each Sabbath. This irregular authority would play out over the years with continued rancor. James Bailey, tired of the frightening and, con- and, con- and contention over his calling, left Salem in 1680. Nathaniel Putnam was elected by the inhabitants (parentheses church members and non-members) to find a new minister. Reverend George Burroughs was hired, and his fate was sealed. George Burroughs was 28 years old in 1860 when he accepted the role as religious helmsman in the quarreling village of Salem. He was a Harvard graduate and went to Falmouth, Maine, to preach in 1670. Falmouth, today is Portland, sat on Casco Bay and was attacked by Indians in 1676 during King Philip's War. Many lost their lives during the milieu. Reverend Burroughs took many of the survivors to, to Salisbury, Maine, where he lived until he received the offer from Salem Village to come there and act as their minister. Burroughs, who had no doubt heard of the contentious villagers, agreed with one caveat. In case any difference should arrive, should arise in time to come, that we engage on both sides to submit to counsel for a peaceable issue. The plea for a peaceable resolution during tough times was not to be. By, 18, by 1682, Burroughs was embroiled in legal disputes. The villagers were once again divided over their support of the minister. April of 1682, Jeremiah Watts wrote that the disputes were putting brother against brother and neighbors against neighbors. Less than one year later, Reverend Burroughs' salary was being withheld. Finally, Burroughs stopped showing up for his Sabbath meetings. Casco Bay had been rebuilding since the Indian desecration, and Burroughs was being asked to come back. But leaving Salem Village would prove to be no easy exit. Not if the excuse me, not if the Putnams had anything to do with it. In September 1681, George Burroughs' wife died. Captain John Putnam loaned Burroughs money to buy the customary funeral wine. He also advanced credit to the Reverend on the other occasions to buy merchandise from Boston. Burroughs promised to pay Putnam back from his salary as Reverend. However, the good Salem villagers reneged on paying Burroughs, and he was unable to repay Putnam. Burroughs had returned to Casco Bay at this point and was ordered back to Salem to make an accounting for the debt. He returned on May 2, 1683, not quite two months after abandoning his post at, Sa- at, at the Salem Village Church. A marshal, probably George Kerwin, Corwin, arrested Burroughs upon his return to the, to, at the instigation of Captain John Putnam for default on his payment of debt. According to the county court records, just as Burroughs began to give his accounts, the marshal came in and, after a while, went to John Putnam, Sr., and whispered to him, 
and said Putnam to him, You know what you have to do. Do your office. Then the marshal came to Mr. Burroughs and said, Sir, I have a writing to read you. Then he read the attachment and demanded goods. Mr. Burroughs answered that he had no goods to show, and that he was now reckoning with the inhabitants, for we know not yet who was in debt, but there was his body. As we were ready to go out of the meeting house, Mr. Burroughs said, Well, what will you do with me? Then the marshal went to John Putnam, Sr., and said to him, What shall I do? The said John Putman replied, You know your business. And then the said Putman went to his brother's house, or went to his brother, Thomas Putman, and pulled him by the coat. And they went out of the house together, and presently came in again. Then said John Putman, Marshal, take your prisoner, and have him up to the ordinary and secure him till morning. The ordinary was the name for Ingersoll's ordinary, a tavern only a stone's throw from Salem Village Meeting House where the first witches were brought for questioning in 1692. Putnam's suit against Burroughs was eventually settled out of court. The disgraced reverend left Salem Village under a cloud of angst and acrimonious feelings between himself and the inhabitants. He returned to Casco Bay, where he lived for nine years. On May 4, 1692, he was brought back to Salem as a prisoner, not for unpaid debts, but as the accused ringleader of a coven of witches. Ditto that Lawson was the next chosen lamb to be slaughtered. He was offered the position as village minister. In 1684, his belongings were brought from Boston to Salem Harbor. His career as a preacher had floundered at Edgerton on Martha's Vineyard. He had pursued other occupations in Boston in the ministry, but without success. It was the disrupted life that brought him to accept Salem Village's offer. But as before, it was not long before the church was fractured. Captain John Putnam and his nephew Thomas Putnam Jr. put forth the concept of a full-fledged of a full-fledged church and the ordination of Lawson as the Salem Village minister. This was a formality not instigated with Bailey and Burroughs. A group of men opposed the idea and would and would play a prominent role in the witch trials to come. There were Joseph Hutchinson, oh, there were Joseph Hutchinson, sorry about that, John Swinnerton. Joseph Porter, and Porter's brother-in-law, Daniel Andrews. The divided parties locked horns, and the, and the dissension escalated. The dissension escalated. January of 1687, the four men mentioned above, went to the villagers and encouraged them to form a committee to bring them their grievances relating to the public affairs of this place. Joseph Hutchinson owned the land the, land the church meeting house was built upon and had bequeathed it to the village in 1673 as used for the building. He now, in a petulant move, fenced in certain sections of the land and began farming it. The village committee, which included several Putnams, complained that he hath so hedged in our meeting house already that we are forced to go in at one gate. Hutchison shot back, They have no cause to complain of me for fencing in my own land, for I am sure I fenced in none of theirs. I wish they would not pull down my fences. As for blocking up the meeting house, it was... It was they did it, and not I, in the time of the Indian Wars, and they, and they made Salem pay for it. I wish they would bring me my rocks they, they took to do it with, for I want them to make a fence with. For once, Salem Town got involved, no doubt to further its own ambitions in an attempt to keep Salem Village tied to its apron screens, strings. 
A three-man committee consisting of John Hawthorne, Bartholomew Gedney, and William Brown Jr. advised not to adopt Diodat Lawson's ordination as the, as the matter had not been so inoffensively managed as it might have been. They went on to admonish the villagers for their continued uncharitable expressions and uncomely reflections tossed to and fro, which represented the effects of settled prejudices and resolved animosity. Their final ad, ad, admonition, these words for me tonight, I don't know why, their final admonition would ring true as a tragic prophecy. These continued behaviors will have a tendency to make such a gap as we fear, if not timely prevented, will let out peace and order and let in confusion and every evil work. Lawson left, unable to endure the constant upheaval over what should have been a joining of a community in the happy prospects of a church where brotherly love and peace would be, a, would be proffered. As mentioned in an earlier chapter, he signed on as a chaplain for a military expedition led by Sir Edmund Andros, the England-appointed governor. The dark force that swept through the Salem village had found a home there, and the shuttered houses were vitriol dripped from the tongues. In Ingersoll's ordinary, where, where men and villagers each other over land disputes. I'm sorry. Where men, <laughs> where men, and okay, where men met. I'm sorry about that. Or <laughs> Ingersoll's ordinary, where men met and vilified each other over land disputes and petty quarrels, and where church members, causing in their righteousness, played spin the bottle, with which neighbors, with with which neighbor was to live. What's going on here? Play spin the bottle. Okay, with which neighbor was to live and which to die upon the gallows. It had been all too easy. It had been all too easy to stir this cauldron of discontent and hatred in this small fractured village. Somewhere in the winter darkness, the unseen hand slid the new bishop into place, brushed phantom fingers across the castles and ponds of absurdity, and finally moved the knights into their familiar L-shaped pattern. It would prove to be the most deadly game with ramifications that still echoed through the decades. Chapter 5 The Knights The Putmans The Putnams I'm sorry, my neighbor across the street was named Putman, so it's tying up my it's tying up my tongue here. The Putnams and the Porters. Salem Village was divided geographically, politically, economically, and morally. The Puritans who had come here to build a shining beacon on the hill had extinguished the flame with bitter jealousies and hatred. As 1692 would attest, it was, con it, it was a community ripe for the picking by an evil hand. The division of Salem Village is all important to understanding the insidious days that were to come. What had begun as a promising partnership between farming and seaport towns had gone awry when prominent families in better placed geographical locations began bathering, gathering the lion's share of the swell. Salem Town was dependent on Salem, Salem Village's food supply, not only for its own sustenance, but for the revenue their exported products created. Not only foodstuffs, but timber was supplied by the farmers, and herein lies the rub. The village farming acreage was shrinking. Third-generation sons were taking their inherited lands and farming them th themselves. This split up what was once large family holdings in one or two generations. Add to that the fact that Salem Village had nowhere to grow. It was hemmed in by towns to the north, east, and west that had gained their independence and drawn boundary lines. Salem Town and the sea blocked their expansion to the south, 
is it any wonder that the land disputes were so common? The farmers with land on the east side of the village had a distinct advantage over those who had chosen farming acreage on the west. The east side was closer in proximity to Salem Town and its important export, export trade its import export trade. This area offered flat meadows and access to several rivers and Salem Harbor, giving it front row seats to the wharves and landings where goods were conveyed. They were closer to the waterways and roads leading from the town and Boston, such as Ipswich Road. The eastern farmers were at least three miles closer to the bustling seaport town of Salem and its trading posts. The western farmers were, by contrast, trying to eke out a living in areas disrupted by swampy marshes and rocky outcroppings. The eastern villagers' proximity to Ipswich Road and its myriad travelers and tradesmen is very significant. Not only did the location offer the landowner the prime spot for the sawmills and taverns, it gave this populace a feeling of connection with Salem Town and the, and the news that came and went from that community in Boston. The western villagers, in turn, were more remote and cut off from the perks their eastern neighbors enjoyed. Three taverns lay on a branch of Ipswich Road and were within the boundaries of Salem Village, Joshua Ray Jr., Okay, Joshua and Walter Phillips ran licensed watering holes while Bridget and Edward Bishop raked in money from their popular unlicensed tavern. John Proctor's was farther removed in the, in the southern portion of Salem Village. Ingersoll's Ordinary was located along Andover Road and typically served the western farmers and travelers heading north. John Proctor had positioned the Salem Committee to allow him to operate a tavern in his house on, on one of the Ipswich Road's arteries. His home, he said, was in the common roadway, which was occasioned several travelers to call in for some refreshments as they pass along. I do ther therefore earnestly request that you will be pleased to grant me liberty to set up to set up house of set up a house of entertainment to sell beer, cider, and liquors. Proctor was granted his license, but the caveat was that he could sell only to outsiders and strangers. While Puritans partook of wine and ale with their meals, they were concerned about the bodily nature of the, people of the people that the taverns attracted. It is no surprise, therefore, that three of the tavern owners became victims of the witchcraft outbreak. Bridget Bishop and John Proctor were hanged as witches in 1692. As the witch trials play out, you will see a distinctive dividing line between those who lived along Ipswich Road and those who did not. When Reverend Paris's position as pastor was put forth for the inhabitants' vote, only two living along the Ipswich Road were in favor of him. Twenty households voted against him. The eastern village farmers were more in tune with their, with their prosperous benefactor, Salem Town. To them, the complaints coming forth from the western farmers were causing problems and worsening relationships with the seaport town. For the western inhabitants, they saw themselves cut off from the benefits flowing to their eastern neighbors, and so they were predominantly pro-Paris. Paris and the Meeting House Church represented some solace that they were breaking away from Salem Town and structuring their own government where they would pay taxes only for their improvements and needs. Of these pro-Paris farmers, most were not affluent. The names of Put there's the name again, see Putnam. So I didn't want to say Putman. The names of Putnam, however, would fill the records of the Salem Village Church, and therein lay all the differences. Reverend Paris's supporters were made up of church members, parentheses, those, con those co covenanted to accept the sacrament. 
who were of neg- neg- who were negligible cod wealth, although some, like the nurses in Putnam's, had money. The majority, who were not members, were poor still and made up the larger body of villagers who supported Paris and his church. It is important to note that the pro-Paris faction played the leading role in the witch trial prosecutions. These people were less wealthy, cut off from the from the income, for, cut off from the income producing rivers and wharves, and only less land. It is also important to remember the underlying core of this populace. Westerner or Easterner, these people came together to create a community built on piousness and religious fervor. The anxiety felt throughout Salem Village in the days leading up to the witchcraft to the witchcraft hysteria was due, was due to that same unrelenting mantra that said if there was trouble, it was due to personal failings. Morally, something was amiss. And while the simple farmers of the western acreage could look for self-righteous malice towards Salem Town, with his capitalist interests and desire for fancy homes and ever-growing economic security, they still felt the pangs of guilt and fear that they were not without fissures in their, in their holiness. And for the Eastern faction, did their Puritan conscience whisper to them in the still hours of the night, asking, which master do you serve, God or money? The pro-Paris villagers, perhaps, saw their neighbors tied to Salem Town as they would those of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wasn't it their right, nay, their duty, to weed out those that were standing in opposition to the Puritan way of life? Did not the Bible teach that to destroy the enemy was morally tainted, was better than to see the righteous falter? If nothing else, then for the sake of the community and their hard-won division from English church and its archaic ways, weren't they morally within their rights to take matters into their own hands, to preserve the righteous of their city on the hill and the futures of their children. And, as Salem Town had left them politically severed and without even a constable of their own, did it not fall to them to mete out justice? Didn't it fall to them to fashion a noose? It's obvious that the divisive nature of the days of 1691 and 1692 had flooded the small hamlet of Salem Village with so many oppositions that it is hard to single out the most destructive element that threw the town into the devil's maw. The warring families of the Porters and Putnams, however, would be the pivotal catalyst that ended in the death of their neighbors and one-time friends. These knights of the most prominent families in Salem Village would move toward each other on a chessboard made of patches of farmland and clash in ways in which only the Prince of Darkness could could revel. The Porters and the Putnams. John Putnam, 65, and John Porter, 48, in 1644, were the patriarchs of two families so similar that it was only logical the two men would move in similar circles inside the Salem village community. They were chosen to walk the streets of the village each Sabbath and report on any inhabitants who were not attending church, such as either lie about the meeting house without attending to the word or ordinances, or that lie at home or in the fields. Both men had moved to Salem from the south of England, and both men prospered. There were differences as well. Not the least was the, the almost 20-year age difference between them. Porter's offspring were quite young while Putnam's were grown. John Putnam accrued land grants to the tune of 800 acres by the time of his death in 1662. Porter, on the other hand, 
had amassed close to 2,000 acres when he died, 14 years after Putnam in 1676. Both men had three living sons, each bearing two. The Putnam second generation living in Salem consisted of Thomas, born in 1615, Nathaniel, born in 1619, and Captain John, born in 1627. The Porter brothers were Joseph, born in 1638, Benjamin, born in 1639, and Israel, born in 1644. All of the Putnam and Porter siblings were, were well off as tax records of 1681 proved. The Putnam brothers paid over twice what the other villagers paid in taxes, and the Porters were wealthier still. It's a conundrum to see these two similar families, leaders of the community, heading up the two disparate parties that were pro and anti-Paris. It would be the village's undoing. During Reverend Paris's ministry, now one of the Porter family members or their in-laws joined the village church. In contrast, two of the Putnam men and several of their wives joined the church under Paris's ministry. The Putnam name appeared ad nauseum on old petitions and church documents, a reflection that they comprised one-fourth of the congregation. Church records indicated that at a church meeting at Brother Thomas Putnam's house, it was voted that our brethren John Putnam Sr. and Nathaniel Putnam and Deacon Edward Putnam and John Putnam Jr. be appointed to meet the dissenters to treat in order to amicable issue. Only young Joseph Putnam joined the ranks of the anti-Paris campaign, but with good reason. He had married Israel Porter's daughter, Elizabeth, and their union would ignite a powder keg. The Putnam family were represented by the Devil's Black Knight. They pushed the witch trials forward with a fervor that was unrelenting. Robert Califf, a witch trial historian and author of More Wonders of the Invisible World, 1700, wrote that family of the Putnams, who were the chief prosecutors in the business. The Putnam family, a total of eight members, went on to accuse 46 witches. Anne Putnam, junior daughter of Thomas Putnam, Jr. would be a driving force in the accusations, although she was only 12 years old. With the Putnams piling wood upon the witchcraft pyre, the Porters had reason to be fearful. They remained in the background with only a few exceptions. Israel's son, John, selected Sarah Biver, the least respectable of the witch accusers, to cast doubt on her testimony. Sarah was from Wenham, a neighboring town, and possibly just far enough outside the village perimeters to be fair game. Israel Porter stood up for Rebecca Nurse when she was accused and circulated a petition that he drew up in her defense. 39 villagers signed it. Israel had been at Rebecca's bedside a few days before her arrest and found her feeble, yet pious in her suffering. The name Porter only appeared a few times during the 1692 witch hysteria, yet they were there in the background, watching and waiting. As noted earlier, those Salem inhabitants living in the easternmost territory of the village had a great advantage over their neighbors who were farming to the west. One of the most prosperous eastern landowners was Israel Porter. His father, John Porter, who had once walked the rutted village roads with John Putnam, senior in search of Sabbath-day slackers, was one of the leading merchants in Salem Town in the 1660s. He was granted land on the waterfront for a new wharf and warehouse. This put the Porter family directly within the town boundaries. Their extensive land holdings were now on both sides of the dotted line that separated Salem Town from Salem Village. In 1670, 
Porter joined Joseph and John Hutchison to build a sawmill on one of the rivers that fed the village proper. Once it was dammed, the, the river leading to Thomas Putnam's house became flooded. Thomas filed suit, stating the dam, the dam had been flooding the single-access road to his farm for months at a time. Quote, To be this long-kept prisoner will be a way to ruin me and mine forever. End quote. He complained. Turning a deaf ear, Porter built a second sawmill on the Fish River at Ipswich Road's crossing in partnership with, with a member of the Endicott family. Sidney Purley, renowned Salem historian, wrote in his History of Salem the following accolades allotted to John Porter during his lifetime in Salem Village Town. Quote, in 1647, John Porter was a foreman of the Essex County Grand Jury. In 1646, he was elected as a Salem Town Selectman. In 1668, he was a deputy of the General Court and became a deacon in the Salem Town Church. In 1661, where his pew was directly behind that of George Corwin and William Hawthorne, wealthy merchants and powerful men in Salem Town government. Even though John Porter lived respectively with Salem, within Salem Village, upon his death, he left a, he left a bequest to the Salem Town Church and nothing to the Salem Village Church, where Reverend Bailey was then acting minister. End quote. It is clear that the lines drawn in the hard ground of Salem kept the Putnam family on one side and the Porter clan on the other. The third generation of Putnams and Porters. It is with the third generation of Putnams that the framework for the witch trials is built. The contentions between the second generation of Putnam's and Porter's may have cleared the way for what was to come, but it is primarily Thomas Putnam Jr.'s family that held the torch and pitchfork aloft and bid others to follow. Thomas Putnam Jr., I did it again, Thomas Putnam Jr., Sr., married Anne Hollyhoke in 1643. They bore eight children, two of which were male. Thomas Putnam Jr. was born 1653, and Edward Putnam in 1654. As the eldest, Thomas Jr. expected to inherit a sizable estate from his father, who was at that time the wealthiest man in the village. He realized the property upon his father's death would be divided up between he and his brother, and that his sister's dowries would be taken care of. Still, his prospects looked bright. His future took on even more promise when he married Anne Carr in 1678. Anne Carr was the daughter of George Carr, a wealthy man from nearby Salisbury. Carr owned 400 acres of farmland and a shipworks in Salisbury. Upon his death, Carr's estate was more than 1,000 pounds, a sizable amount in 1682. Thomas had married a woman whose future looked every bit as bright as his own, and their alliance opened the door for Putnam to become involved in his rich father-in-law's myriad businesses. Only four years after Thomas and Anne married, however, that magic bubble of prosperity and bliss burst. Upon George Carr's death, his widow and two of his sons took control of the estate. About 60% of Carr's estate, which included the shipworks and a ferry business, was given to the two sons, with the, with the other six children receiving bequests that amounted to about 10% of the inheritance. In 1682, Thomas Putnam, Jr., along with some of Carr's family, filed a protest that the widow and her sons, acting as ex executors, were cheating the daughters and their husbands out of their rightful inheritance. 
Their pleadings proved ineffectual, and Ann Carr Putnam walked away with a fraction of what she and her husband Thomas had expected. Okay, all right, all is not lost. Thomas still had his father's vast holdings to look forward to as the eldest son in Thomas Sr.'s lineage. Thomas expected to inherit almost 300 acres along with the family homestead. The eldest son typically received a double portion, which would further fill his, his coffers. His future, though not as dazzling as he had first expected through his union with the car, was still glittering enough to satisfy him and his desire for wealth and status. But, like the tides that fill Salem Harbor, only to be sucked away when the waters ebbed, the unseen force hovering over Salem Village would block the black night using the harshest blow of all. And a move no one saw coming, the elderly Thomas Putnam Sr. decided to take a second wife in 1666, one year after his first wife died. Perhaps the last three numbers in the state were indicative of the evil forces at work against Thomas Putnam Jr., for it was with this new wife, Mary Varin, that the prodigy son, Joseph, would be born in 1669. Mary Varin was the widow of Nathaniel Varin, a Salem ship captain, who, along with his two brothers, were affluent merchants in Salem town. Mary owned her own house in town that she had purchased from one of her, brother-in-law, one of her brothers-in-law. Another Salem merchant, Selectman Timothy Lindell, became her son-in-law. His name would appear again in the witchcraft debacle. She bore Putnam Sr. a son, Joseph, the only offspring of their union. It was with this birth and the consequent actions of Mary and Thomas Sr. that a bitter hatred would be fueled that would see Thomas Putnam Jr.'s name on so many witchcraft accusations. As stated earlier, he made at least 35 complaints against innocent souls and testified against 17. His wife, Anne Carr Putnam, their 12-year-old daughter, Anne Jr., and their servant, Mercy Lewis, were among the most vocal and voiceless of the accusers. Thomas also recorded 120 depositions against accused witches. His detailed accounts of the depositions of witnesses was written in a way to promote the guilt of the accused during a trial. His efforts were rewarded with a high success rate of guilty charges. For whatever reason, when Thomas Putnam Sr. died in 1686, he left a will. With the approval of his wife Mary, leaving the largest part of his estate to Mary and their son Joseph, then 16 years old. According to Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissebaum's book, Salem Possessed, 1974, they refused, or they referred to even Putman's history of the Putnam family, 1891, giving the details of the, of the will that gave the widow and Joseph the best part of the estate, including ample family farmstead, the household furnishings, all the barns and outbuildings, and agricultural equipment, and many of the most fertile acres that had been granted to old John Putnam 40 years before. The will reaffirmed Putnam Sr.'s bequest of farms for his two sons, Thomas and Edward, from his first marriage, and dowries for his daughters. Yet, this fell short of the inheritance that the Putnam siblings had expected. The fact that their father's will had made the unusual caveat that Joseph could take over his inheritance at age 18 instead of the usual 21 years of age fanned the flames. This meant that within only two years, young Joseph would be one of the richest Putnams in Salem, Salem Village. The final burn came inside the will's fine print. Israel Porter, the Putnam, the, the Putnam nemesis, 
was named overseer of the estate, with the widow Putnam and young John Joseph acting as executors. Thomas Jr., his brother Edward, and their brothers-in-law, Jonathan Walcott and William Trask, took it to court. They asked that Thomas Putnam Jr. be named executor, so that a fair accounting of the estate might be undertaken. They claimed they were extremely wronged and blamed the, wi blamed the widow Putnam for the unfair distribution of property. Mary Varin Putnam hired, sorry, Mary Varin Putnam hired a Salem town attorney, and the opponent's suit came to naught. And so, without any effort on his behalf, Joseph Putnam, age 18, became the largest heir to the Putnam estate on September 14, 1687. The yardstick of all his wealth is measured in the 1690 tax records. Joseph's taxes were 40% higher than his older half-brothers and all of the third generation of Putnams. The betrayal was far from over. In 1690, only two years before the witchcraft outbreak, Joseph Putnam, now 20 years of age, married Elizabeth Porter, the 16-year-old daughter of the Putnam enemy, Israel Porter. Joseph was now in, in, ensconced in the Porter clan, merging the wealth of Salem Village's two most affluent families. He would now enjoy the benefits of his alliance with the prosperous Salem town's merchants, while his half-brothers continued to toil in rock-infested farmland, cut off from growth of any hope of furthering their position in life. Not that the Putnam men were not considered prosperous in their farming endeavors and leaders of the community, but their achievements pale when compared with that of their younger half-brother, who was taking full advantage of his mother's political and economic connections in Salem Town. Mary Vernon Putnam died in 1695 and fired the financial shot heard through the Putnam household. In her will, she left everything to Joseph and cut off Thomas Jr., Edward, and Deliverance Putnam, leaving them a mere five shillings each because they brought upon me inconvenient unnecessary chargings and disbursements at several times. Joseph, meanwhile, had now aligned himself with the Porter kinsmen who were anti-Paris and influential in what lie ahead. Joseph Porter and Daniel Andrews, along with aforementioned Timothy Lindell. Daniel Andrews would be accused of witchcraft in less than two years. Did Israel Porter play puppet master in the whole affair? He was, after all, the one to drop Thomas Putnam Sr.'s will. He was overseer for Mary Vernon, for Mary Vernon Putnam's estate at, at Putnam Sr.'s passing. He had introduced Joseph to his daughter Elizabeth in a plot to unite a Putnam with a Porter. Was it he who influenced the changing of Joseph's age to inherit from 16 to 18 and fear something may happen if Mary, Joseph's mother, died before he came of age? He married off his daughter Elizabeth as soon as she turned 16. Had even the devil underestimated the craftiness and cunning of the White Knight in the deadliest of chess games? One quick correction, the shilling, not pound. Okay. Sorry about that. She's a witch. Chapter 6, she's a witch. Late February 1692 found the roads of Salem Village weighted down with mud and sludge from a sudden thaw. Winter had taken a breath, promising spring, and what many considered a season of fresh hope. 
but in the personage of Reverend Samuel Parrish, hope seemed far away. The plague afflicting his daughter and niece was spreading to other girls in other households. Some evil force was at work in his parish. As a religious leader of that faction, it fell to him to explain it to his congregation and offer a promise of healing. His precarious position with the strong opponents he faced daily within the village boundaries was tripled with this new development. It appeared to all around him that the devil had chosen him and his home to begin the recruitment of innocent lives. Only two possibilities existed now in the minds of the villagers. Either the girls were themselves witches, or they had been bewitched. Perhaps due to their tender age and their relationship with the town reverend, the latter was the only possibility considered. Several ministers from neighboring towns came to the parsonage to witness for themselves the sufferings of Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. We know Reverend John Hale from Beverly was one of them, according to his accounts of the meeting. From Salem Town came, came the Reverend Nicholas Noyes and Captain Stephen Seawall. There may have been others, but it is these names that appear on documents. After seeing the girls, the ministers called for a public fast. During the meeting, many of the girls sat as if in a trance. Abigail Williams, however, took advantage of the gathering and shouted out in shrieks that unnerved the congregation and the ministry. The traveling clergy had to finally admit the hand of Satan was in them. They placed the odious responsibility to ferret out the cause of the affliction squarely in Paris's lap. Basically, he was told, it started in your home. You fixed this. Find out who was doing this to the girls. To soften the blow, they told Paris he could put a good face on, on it to his congregation by noting the devil had chosen him due to his post as leader of the church in Salem Village. In other words, good versus evil. Paris's sermons show his attempt to allay the suspicion that he was in want of moral virtues and therefore fodder for the devil's dealings. Tituba. The girls seemed to have worsened after Tituba's counter magic with the witch cake. It was Tituba in was Tituba Indian Betty and Ab, it was Tituba Indian Betty and Abigail witnessed stirring the rye meal cake into a ball of white magic. It is perhaps for that reason that when the Reverend that when Reverend Paris pressed them with the question, "Who afflicts thee?" that Tituba's name was finally uttered. Cornered, the two girls had had two choices: admit they had been faking, parentheses after. Parentheses, after noted clergy had traveled miles to pray over them, or name a name. There was no other way out of it. It has long been considered true that little Becky Paris loved Tituba. The slave probably had the lion's share of caring for the child as Elizabeth Paris was often ill and in bed. Here may have been the cuddling and comforting the nine-year-old needed to allay her nervous fears. She may have fallen asleep to Tituba's stories of the old world and become drowsy from the sing-song rhythm of the slave's strange and exotic songs. It was later written down that Betty cried out, Oh, Tituba, this may have been misconstrued as an accusation rather than a frightened plea for help or from anguish. Tituba was a black Spanish Indian. With, in, with Indian attacks on, on, and ongoing terror, was it easier to name someone who resembled the enemy that had slaughtered so many of the village kin? From reports, we see Abigail as a stubborn and outspoken young girl. Had Tituba reprimanded 
her in the past for poor behavior at home? Was Abigail only a ward of the family, jealous of Tatuba's attention to Betty? There were two other small children in the household at the time, but history makes hardly any mention of them. Obviously, they were not among the afflicted. Sarah Good Thursday, February 25, 1692 Ann Putnam, Jr. became the next girl to cry out against a witch in the village. She chose a woman that would, in the villager's mind, be no loss. Sarah Good. Sarah Good was considered a scourge to, the t to a town steeped in piety and the outward appearance of cleanliness and moral rectitude. At 38 years of age, Sarah was forced to beg from her neighbors for food and often shelter. She was dirty, foul-smelling, and smoked a pipe. She, along with her five-year-old daughter Dorothy, Dorcas, roamed the muddy streets and knocked on doors in search of another day's sustenance. Many gave her food in an effort to get rid of her, even then, and the, if the offering was paltry or none at all, she walked away muttering. Goody Good had reason to mutter. Life had not been kind to her. With events that strangely mimicked those of Thomas Putnam Jr., her inheritance was taken from her. Sarah's father had been a fluent innkeeper in Wenham a village just north of Salem Village. She was one of seven children sired by John Solart. At the age of 18, her father drowned. Some called it a suicide. Sarah's mother soon married another man, and her new stepfather lost no time in commandeering Solart's estate, which consisted of 77 acres and 500 pounds of sterling. Sarah Good, like Thomas Putnam Jr. before her, battled for her rights at the general court in Boston in 1682, only ten years before she was to be hauled into another court accused of witchcraft. The Boston court awarded her a small plot of land along with three acres of meadowland her father had left her. Sarah married Daniel Poole, who celebrated their good fortune by ordering himself a fine suit of clothing and two dresses for Sarah. He suddenly died, leaving her with the debt for the clothing, amounting to seven pounds. I was right about pounds. That works. To pay his funeral expenses, she sold a horse, two cows, and a good deal of her personal property. She married William Good a year later. William was a weaver, and she may have felt her life would change for the better. But alas, her late husband's creditors relentlessly pressed for the debts Daniel Poole left owing. Sarah was forced to sell off part of the land, she had fought for so diligently in court. In only a short time, she had sold it all, and her new husband and she were destitute. They began begging off their neighbors for food and other needs, despite the 17th century warning from town selectmen that those falling on hard times were not to beg for handouts. Sarah became a bitter woman, shrew-like and vindictive. She was forced to approach the affluent for crumbs, people she had once equal in rank and status when her wealthy father was alive. The hardships took their toll on her husband. He testified against, against her during her arrest on April 30th, stating he was afraid that she either was a witch or would be one very quickly. When asked why he thought that William, thought that William Good replied that she treated him badly and that she was an enemy to all good. Five days later, he told the magistrates that he had seen what looked like a witch's teeth or a wart 
just below Sarah's right shoulder that he did not notice before. Was it there to suckle the witch's familiars? The couple had made many enemies in the, of, the village, of the villagers as they went about begging for help. Mary and Samuel Abbey had felt pity for the homeless couple and given them shelter under their roof, only to ask them to leave due to Sarah's tirades. Sarah and Thomas Gadge turned her away, fearing that in her filthy condition she may be carrying smallpox. Henry Herrick's father had refused to allow her to sleep in his barn in fear her pipe would burn the place down. And so became the life of Sarah Good. It would pale in comparison to what was coming next. On Saturday, February 27th, young Elizabeth Hubbard was walking back from Thomas Putnam's to Dr. George to Dr. Griggs' home, where she lived. She had been visiting with her friend Anne Putnam Jr. It was a long walk on that second to the last day of February, and 1692 was a leap year, and thus an extra day was added to a calendar that would become infamous. Doubtless due to Anne Putnam Jr.'s tales of Sarah Good haunting her, Elizabeth in an excited state, spotted a black wolf stalking her. Her first thought was that Sarah Good, the witch afflicting Anne Jr., had sent one of her familiars to follow the girl home, or worse. Was the wolf actually Sarah Good in an animal form? The wind cut through her cape and stung her face as she quickened her pace. The rutted and muddy road seemed to mock her haste as it slowed down her hurried footsteps. The farms were spread out here, and most were set far back from the road. Israel Porter's farm was one such home she passed, so far removed from Ipswich Road that one could barely see it. She crossed Porter River at Goff's Bridge and hurried the final yards to the Griggs home across from Reaches, from, 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 from Reaches Hill. Gusts of wind raised her cape and tugged at her dress, each, each assault confirming a witch was after her. Sarah Good may have sent the tempest that was flooding the roads and farmland. She hurried through the door, slamming it and latching the hook. A howling sounded from outside the wooden door. Was it the wind or a wolf frustrated losing its prey? On this same day, Elizabeth Hubbard also began to be tormented by end of spirit, that of Sarah Osborne. Sarah Osborne was not the wandering beggar that Sarah Good portrayed. She had married Robert Prince in 1662, becoming the mistress of a 150-acre ranch in Salem. Prince's sister was married to a Putnam, Captain John Putnam, who lived next door. Prince died in 1674, willing his land to Sarah, with one caveat. She was to divide the land between their sons, James and Joseph, when they came, when they came of age to inherit. John Jr. and Thomas Putnam Jr., were made executors of his will. Sarah was now a widow with two small sons and a farm to run. She hired a young Irishman, Alexander Osborne, buying, buying him as an independent servant for 15 pounds of sterling. 15 pounds sterling. Nothing wrong with that. The trouble began when Alexander, many years Sarah's junior, moved into the main house and a romance blossomed, much to the chagrin of the pious Puritans. Even when they married, the strain of misconduct was not eased. Adding to her unpopularity, Sarah moved to contest her late husband's will in an effort to control the property. It may be, she thought, her new marriage might bring additional offspring. For whatever reason, the legal battle raged on. In fact, 
Sarah Osborne would be hanged as a witch before the suit was settled. The Sabbath fell the following day, February 28, 1692. The weather was formidable, with strong gales and torrents of rain. The four girls had cried out against three witches, Tatuba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. Their hysterics and fits were so grievous that it was decided to take action. Thomas Putnam Jr., and Jr.'s father, his brother Edward, Joseph Hutchinson, and Thomas Preston, who was the son-in-law to Rebecca Nurse, faced the storm and rode to Salem Town to put forth the official complaints against the three women. They charged the Tituba Indian, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne, were, were under suspicion of witchcraft due to much mischief done to Elizabeth Betty Paris, Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., and Elizabeth Hubbard. Sundry times within this two months, and lately also done at Salem Village, contrary to the peace of our Sovereign Lord and Lady William and Mary King, and Mary, King and Queen of England. John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, magistrates of Salem Town, swore out the arrests. The constables from the territories where the women lived were, arrest, were to arrest them and take them to Nathaniel Ingersoll's Ordinary in Salem Village by 10 o'clock the following morning to be questioned. Ingersoll's Ordinary, though functioning as a tavern, was frequently used as a meeting house for more than just drinks and meals. Other than a gathering place for local gossip, it was the only communal building in, the, in that area large enough to hold a sizable group meeting for more official needs. The watch house was across the street and could hold prisoners temporarily if needed. It is probably not lost on the reader how prominently Thomas Putnam Jr.'s influence is already seen in these arrests. It was his daughter who claimed Sarah Good was tormenting her. Elizabeth Hubbard followed suit after visiting Ann Jr. at the Putnam home. Thomas was the executor to the late Robert Prince's will that his widow, Sarah Osborne, was trying to refute. Only Tituba Indian was outside the Putnam's net. It may have been little Betty Parrish crying out, Tituba, she, oh Tituba, when asked about witches that sealed Tituba's fate. Betty may have only been crying out because she had witnessed the slave making a witch cake, and it frightened her. But to those in attendance in the Paris home, it sounded like an accusation, and the witch hunt was on. All right, that's it. Um, we'll continue Sunday. We're going to hit Chapter 7 Sunday. So that'll be Sunday at 6.30. We continue with the book. Let me close this off. And again, I want to thank everybody for being here tonight and sticking with me. Unfortunately, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of clarify. Our guest for tonight uh, wrote in a few minutes before the show started that she had COVID and couldn't do the show, which is fine. So she will be on sometime in November. She's requested to have a, another date set up. So we're going to do that. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, tomorrow night, Nancy Matz is going, to, is going to be with us. And she's going to be doing readings. So we might end up with a two-hour show tomorrow. So be prepared for that. We're going to have a nice show. And she'll be doing readings. And we're also going to talk about deceased pets and how they're around you and what happens after they pass and all, and all that stuff. So it should be an interesting night tomorrow night. Again, if you like the show uh, and you're watching from Facebook, please... Uh, Hit that follow like button and that button follow me on Facebook because we have a show Monday through Sunday is our show schedule. I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, I apologize. Sunday through Friday. See that? 
however you're senile. So on Sunday through Friday, we, 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 we do live shows here, whether it's reading or guests or whatever. So uh, we're, we're here, what, six days a week, six or seven days a week doing this. We love doing it. But uh, thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. And again, if you you know if you're on Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. I'd appreciate it. That little ghost in the bottom right hand corner. Um, check me out. <laughs> check out my site. Check me out. Check out my site over at uh, <clears throat> over at Instagram under Ghosty Gal all lowercase. Check us out over at uh, TikTok California Haunts under it's all lowercase as well. Anyway, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show. Share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And, uh, you know, we just, we're just we just trying to get the word out. So the more people you share with, the more people are going to come listen to us. And uh, just like our friends on the podcast, I thank you guys profusely for uh, listening. Um, and I appreciate you sharing what we do. And I hope you continue to do that. Even the new people that come on, the pod- come on and listen to us to the podcast, please keep sharing and Share, share, share. It's all about sharing and getting the word out about the show. So anyway, I'm going to call it a night, and uh, I will see you all tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific when I have uh, Nancy Matz with me. All right? See you tomorrow. Have a good night, guys.